मैं आ गया तेजा हेलो उस दिलों की तरह मैं पीछे से हमला नहीं करता तेजा मैं तुम्हें यह बताने आया हूं कि मैं तुम्हें खत्म कर दूंगा कर दो इंतजार किस बात का है मैं तुम्हारे सामने इतनी आसानी से नहीं तेजा तुम्हारी वजह से मैंने छह महीने जेल में काटे वहां हर दिन हर पल मैंने तुम्हें याद किया अब छह महीने तक तुम्हें हर पल हर घड़ी मेरा खतरा महसूस होगा दैट वॉज अ सीन फ्रॉम द हिंदी ब्लॉक बस्टर जंजीर अमिताभ बच्चन प्लेड विजय खन्ना the upright cop turned vigilante traumatized by his parents killing zanjeer released in may 1973 and one of hindi cinema's most iconic figures the angry young man was born over the next decade bachchan cemented his stardom by reprising the role in divar trishul and kuli the angry young man was a product of his time he channeled the angst and desperation that marked indians lives in the 1970s Gone was the optimism of the early days of Indira Gandhi's rule and the jubilation over the Bangladesh war. Garibi Hatao had proved to be an empty promise as the country faced deepening economic distress. Indira Gandhi argued that the solution to these wars lay in shifting the economy to a socialist pattern which included public control of key industries. She thought her government had removed the legal obstacles to implementing these policies with the 24th and 25th amendments. But those amendments as we know had led to arguably the most important constitutional challenge in independent India's history. Welcome back to Friend of the Court. I'm Raghu Karnad. This season we're exploring India's most important court case. Keshavananda Bharti versus State of Kerala. So far, we've looked at the build up to the case and the arguments on both sides. In this episode, we finally turn the spotlight on the verdict the future constitution of india all the world admires a deal well done we can say that we have done this act well After 66 days of arguments, the Keshavananda hearings ended on March 23, 1973. The bench had a month to decide on how they would rule. Now, normally, when you have a case like that, before the judgments are delivered, all the judges meet in conference and they decide. Sometimes the chief justice says, "You, Mr. Judge, you will write the judgment." Somebody says, "I'll write the dissent." Not in the very pleasant uh, way in which they decide but here because of the tension amongst the judges they had only called a conference of those like-minded judges with secrecy no conference was held 
This is T.R. Randhya one of the government's lawyers. As he tells us, the mood on the bench was strained. One member, Justice Jagan Mohan Reddy, later claimed in his memoir that Chief Justice Sikri did not convene all 13 judges even once to discuss the colossal questions at stake. In the weeks after the hearings concluded, Sikri met with seven other judges, pointedly leaving out Justices Beg, Matthew, Ray, Tuivedi and Palekar. It was presumed that these five would rule in favour of the government. Beg and Dwivedi were thought to be Indira Gandhi's appointees to the court. Ray had twice ruled in her government's favour in major cases. Sikri later told the Press Trust of India that he had consulted only a few judges because he wanted to, quote, stabilise the case and diminish the number of judgments. There were rumours that the government had already seen some of the opinions. Two judges on the bench later told constitutional historian Granville Austin that they suspected Judges Beg and Tuivedi were leaking information to the government. The incumbent Chief Justice of India, Justice Sikri, was set to retire one day after the judgment was pronounced, and the government hadn't announced the appointment of his successor. Convention dictated that the next most senior judge would succeed him. That would have been Justice J.M. Shailat, 64 years old, elevated to the Supreme Court in 1966. The government seemed to be dilly-dallying on announcing his name, perhaps waiting to see how the bench decided. In Bombay, the petitioner's camp too was busy speculating on which way it would go. Nani Palkiwala, the lead counsel, expected nine judges to rule in their favour, but he wasn't confident. In the days leading up to the judgement, Palkiwala was reportedly a bundle of nerves. The future of Indian democracy rested on this judgment. On 24th of April, 1973, the bench assembled in courtroom number one to deliver the verdict. So this bench sat in court, all 13 judges, a lot of tension. Ten judgments were issued by ten judges. How do you get the real, what we lawyers call the ratio of this judgment? It was actually 11 opinions, not 10. The proceedings started with Sikri reading out his opinion. He was followed by Justice Shailat, who read the joint opinion he'd wrote for himself and Justice Grover. Then Justice Hegde read out the opinion he'd written for himself and Justice Mukherjee. He was followed by Justice Ray. Justice Reddy was next. As he read, Justice Palikar, seated beside him, kept passing him notes, complimenting him on his prose. Then Palikar, Khanna, Matthew, Beg, Dwivedi and Chandrachud each read out their individual opinions. Sikri's hopes of trimming the judgment were dashed. The 11 opinions added up to 502 pages. It was the longest judgment ever handed down by the Supreme Court of India at the time. But its length was not the biggest concern. No one immediately understood what it said. It was a maze of confusing pronouncements. Sikri saw one way out. But Justice Sikri played a great strategy. You might say even a trick. All the judges read their judgments. Then he brought out a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, he says, the view of the majority. And he said, the view of the majority is that the amendment cannot destroy the basic structure of the Constitution, which he took from Khanna. He passed on the, judge, the paper for signature. Justice Sikri, Shailat, Grover, Higde, six judges signed this paper. 
Some other judges also signed the petition. Four of the judges, led by Justice Ray, Matthew, Big, and Stivari, just passed on the paper like that. I will you won't sign it. Nine judges signed. Four of them refused to sign. So it is very doubtful whether there was really, as we lawyers say, the ratio of the cases that. But that is the way in which Sikhi managed it. And some people said this was a sort of a trickery by Sikhi. Normally, it's easy to decipher how judges have ruled based on their written opinions. No bench has ever felt a need to issue a separate statement specifying the ratio of the judgment, either before or since the Keshavananda Bharati case. Here's lawyer and constitutional scholar Gautam Bhatia. I think that it responded to a very unusual situation that the highest bench strength there were 13 judges and effectively creating new doctrine. And of course, you had a strong executive, uh, an executive that brooked no dissent. So I think if you look at all these things, it was a pretty unique situation as well that perhaps uh, triggered a very unique response from the court. So what did the view by the majority statement say? It outlined what the majority had held in six crisp bullet points. It clarified that the Golaknath verdict was overruled and that the 24th, 29th, and most of the provisions of the 25th Amendment were valid. So far, this seemed to be in favor of the government. But the document also said that Article 31C was partially invalid. That was the article that downgraded certain fundamental rights in favor of directive principles. It also took away the court's power to review amendments. The court had struck down this second part. Finally, it made a decision about Article 368. It said Parliament did not have the power to alter the basic structure of the Constitution. But what that meant wasn't immediately clear. Overall, it seemed like the government had won. Senior advocate Arvind Datar sums up. So by and large, the Supreme Court upheld the powers of Parliament to amend it. And they said, yes, you can amend it, you can change it. They said, uh, you can take away, uh, you, you can amend part Three. They overruled Golaknath. Then they said all these land reform laws are perfectly valid. Yeah, all those things they upheld. All the amendments were held to be valid. And they said that for directive principles are very important. They emphasized that. So ultimately what they said was, yes, you can amend, but you can't amend the basic structure. And what about Keshavananda Bharati, the monk who would later be hailed as the man who saved the constitution? With land reforms deemed valid, he gained nothing. But again, for the individual petitioners, there was no relief because all their, whatever was taken away was taken away. So it was a big uh, exercise for the public, but the individual petitioners didn't succeed. A close reading of the judgments suggested that the bench was divided seven to six. But the reasoning behind the majority opinion was not clear. Let's break down how the bench ruled on three important questions. First, on the issue of Parliament's power to amend the Constitution. Six judges held that there were implied limitations on this power. They included Sikri, Shailat, Grover, Hegde, Mukherjee and Reddy. Let's call them the Sikri group. Six others held that there were no limits. They included Ray, Beg, Dwivedi, Matthew, Palekar and Chandrachud. Let's call this the Ray group. One person stood out from both. Justice H.R. Khanna a soft-spoken, poetry-loving man who started his judicial career as a district court judge. Khanna said that there were no implied limitations on Parliament's amending power, but he added a crucial caveat. Parliament could not change or destroy the basic structure. Lawrence Liang, professor of law at Ambedkar University, Delhi, explains. His understanding 
turned crucially on the word amend. What exactly does the word amend mean? Does amendment mean abrogation? In other words, Kanna was asking the vexed question. Does amendment mean authorship of a new constitution? And so he took the ground that amendment is a very particular power. It's limited. It's limited because it is subservient to the presumption that there is a constitution that already exists. So you can't bring a new constitution. Right? You're not a constituent assembly. If you're a constituent assembly, no problem. You can legitimately bring a new constitution. But if you're only a parliament, but parliament has been given unlimited powers to amend, then what happens? So Khanna arrives in that sense at that elegant solution, which is that you can amend the constitution subject to not altering the basic structure. That was the key takeaway from the judgment that Parliament had expansive powers of amendment, but could not alter the basic design of the Constitution. The next important question the judgment decided was, could Parliament amend the fundamental rights? Here the Sikri group said that Parliament could amend, but not delete them. The Ray group said that Parliament could amend the fundamental rights, even if it meant deleting them. Khanna, once again, fell somewhere in between. He said that fundamental rights could be amended and even deleted, as long as such amendments did not alter the basic structure. In Diwar, there's this famous dialogue where Amitabh Bachchan and Shashi Kapoor confront each other in the bridge that serves as a reminder of their childhood. Uh, and the first question that Amitabh Bachchan asks Shashi Kapoor, Before I speak to you, I need to know who I'm speaking to. Am I speaking to a brother or am I speaking to a police inspector? To which Ravi says, as long as a brother is speaking, a brother will hear. The moment a criminal starts speaking, a police inspector will start hearing. In the Diwar analogy, Justice Khanna is the upright Shashi Kapoor, both the younger brother and the cop. It just depended on how you were looking at him. Khanna stayed true to form on the third important question as well. Was Article 31C valid? The Ray group saw nothing wrong with it, while most of the Sikri group thought it was invalid. Kanna once again complicated the picture. On the one hand, he said that certain fundamental rights were inferior to the collective good, and he singled out the right to property to say that it was not part of the basic structure. But he struck down parts of Article 31C that removed judicial review. He said that was beyond Parliament's scope to amend. Judicial review is so central in the imagination of what the judicial function of courts in a democracy are, that courts have zealously guarded against any encroachment upon their powers of judicial review. In this case, the courts said that Article 31C effectively takes away the power of judicial review, and that is beyond the purview of the parliament. Because of the doctrine of the separation of powers, if the power of parliament is to make laws, the power of the judiciary is to examine the validity of these laws on constitutional grounds and on constitutional principles. Palkiwala had expected nine judges to rule in his favour. The final count was seven, four and six against. The greater drama in Justice Khanna's career still lay some ways down the road, but he'd made his mark on history by casting the tie-breaking vote in this case. His son Rajiv Khanna, a businessman in Chennai, saw in his father's judgment a reflection of the man he'd always known. 
he spoke to us about his father's views and values. He he recognized the fact that great power came with great responsibility. He used to also say, as far as Keshavan and Bharti case and otherwise, he used to say that the moderates have a great role and were the lubricants of the society. And therefore, very often he would try to find the middle path. In the days and weeks that followed, the finer aspects of the opinions began to sink in. In Bombay, the lawyers for the petitioners huddled in a meeting. Nani Palkhiwala, along with C.K. Daftari, Anil Divan, Sandeep Thakur, and the young article clerk, Yazdi Dandiwala, were all present. Dandiwala tells us more. So in that meeting, certainly there was some disappointment about the overall outcome. At the same time, there was a feeling of relief that at least the basic thing has been preserved and protected. And to set aside or overcome this judgment is not going to be easy because to have again another bench of a larger number and all is not going to be there so easy. So at least that assessment was made that this much protection is now there. It ought to have been more, but okay. Though disappointed by the wafer-thin majority, Palkiwala took some hope from the judgment. Later that year, he wrote, and I quote, Something precious has been salvaged out of the government's claim to have the power to wreck the constitution. The government's lead counsel was more critical. H.M. Sirvai denounced the judgment as clearly incorrect. Sirvai believed that Khanna had been wrongly included in the majority. He focused on the fact that Khanna said that parliament had the power to delete fundamental rights, specifically the fundamental right to property. And this, he argued, meant that Khanna agreed with the Ray group. By Sirvai's logic, it was actually a 7-6 majority in favour of the government. In September that year, Law Minister H.R. Gokhale went on to call the judgment vague and suggested that the Supreme Court sit again to clear up the confusion it had created. The overall feeling was that there was no unanimity about what fell within the basic structure. Each of the majority opinions offered its own version. Gautam Bhatia explains. Ultimately, it held that there was a basic structure and that could not be damaged or destroyed. And uh, the basic structure effectively had certain features, you know, so separation of powers, uh, judicial review, the federal structure, certain, you know, principles such as equality or the rule of law. Uh, but the majority did not define exhaustively uh, basic features. Chief Justice Sikri said it included five things. The supremacy of the constitution, federalism, secularism, republican and democratic form of government, and the separation of powers. In their opinion, Shailat and Grover added the fundamental rights and the unity and integrity of the country to Sikri's list. They said it was not possible to list out all the features, and instead they offered a rule of thumb. Elements of the basic structure could be derived from the spirit of the constitution. Shailat and Grover's opinion said it was important to look beyond the land reforms and property rights that triggered this case. They asked a bigger question. Could a parliament with unlimited power abuse fundamental rights other than the right to property? Sudhir Krishnaswamy, Vice-Chancellor of NLS Bangalore, has written a comprehensive analysis of the judgment. In a public lecture at the Bangalore International Centre in 2021, he spoke about Shailat and Grover's opinion. There can be extreme cases in political democracies where partial and temporary majorities run through a constitution. 
you know, and they just get rid of a constitution. And in Shailith and Grover, what's interesting is that what is that image? The image is of the failure of the Weimar Republic and the emergence of fascism in 1930s Germany. Krishnaswamy is referring to the overuse of the emergency and amendment provisions of the Weimar constitution, which ultimately paved the way for Nazi rule. So it's very clear that what that opinion threatens and warns future citizens about is that what we need to craft here is not a doctrine that threatens land reform. What we need to craft here is a doctrine that prevents an authoritarian slide. The government's immediate reaction was cautious. Gandhi herself was silent. The day after the judgment, headlines claimed that the ministers Gokhale and Kumaramangalam had hailed the decision. But Gokhale expressed some disappointment that parts of 31C had been struck down. The fact that the government didn't like the way the court had ruled became crystal clear within 24 hours. The four senior-most judges had ruled with the majority in favor of the basic structure. Along with Chief Justice Sikri, these were Justices Shailat, Hegde and Grover. Justice Santosh Hegde, now a retired Supreme Court judge, and the son of Justice K.S. Hegde was a young lawyer at the time. He happened to be in Delhi on April 25th, the day after the judgment. Around 5.45 by 6 o'clock, my dad came home. There was nothing um, uh, that we could see, uh, whether his apprehension that something is going to happen uh, or whether he was in a bad mood that uh, um, uh, he won't be the Chief Justice of India. No, I, we didn't see any such thing at all. And all. Uh, he came, he had gone in to change his dress to his bedroom and when my brother was, there was only one TV in the whole house. And all. Like today, my brother was a naval officer, was uh, um, uh, watching the TV. He came suddenly running into my dad's thing and told dad that, that uh, you and two others have been superseded. That's the television news. Meaning the three senior judges were passed over for a junior judge. But dad didn't collapse or I didn't get, uh, get angry and shivering or anything. No, I didn't see him in that thing. By that time, I also had gone, gone because the way my brother was saying it, you know, I said, what's happening? So I also went into the bedroom to uh, what was the thing. But I couldn't say anything. He took it calmly, the thing. And uh, he didn't discuss it with his my, with my mother or, or with us or anything. And all. He coolly went to the phone and uh, uh, spoke to Justice Grover and uh, Justice Shailet uh, and uh, came back, sat in his table and hand wrote the um, resignation to the president and all. I was making an arrangement to send it to the president. He didn't even wait for a minute uh, after he came to know of this thing. He must have made up his mind. Uh, maybe, maybe he had his apprehension. Maybe uh, that's what kept him cool because he must have known, anticipated. But he never gave expression to it. Sikri was probably relaxed. He went out golfing on his last day. So he, like everyone else, was shocked to hear the 5pm bulletin on AIR that the three judges next in line to succeed him had all been superseded. After all, as convention dictated, Justice Shailat, the next senior-most judge, should have succeeded Sikri. The four men convened together at Shailat's house. Sikri, who was retiring anyway, decided to resign with them in protest. Mr. A. N. Ray is the new Chief Justice of India. Mr. Ray superseded three other judges of the Supreme Court. The Constitution leaves the choice of Chief Justice to the President under advice of the Council of Ministers. Mr. Ray started his legal career in Calcutta. He was a... That clip is from a black and white films division newsreel. In it, you can see Justice Ray standing beside President V. V. Giri, 
inside Rashtrapati Bhavan. He's in his black judge's gown and thick round glasses, reading out the oath of office. The camera pans to the audience clapping politely. But outside Rashtrapati Bhavan, there was an outcry. Protests broke out immediately. Santosh Hegde was traveling with his father, Justice K.S. Hegde, back to Bangalore. One thing I still remember, that issue became all Indian issue. I remember I was also traveling with him in the train, the thing. Every station where the train stopped, there were people, I wouldn't say thousands and all, maybe a few, it's 100 people or 50 people or 10 people like that. In every station, uh, they would come and shout slogans against the government of the day, so slogans praising the uh, superseded judges. Lawyers too held gatherings in protest. 7,000 lawyers in Bombay and 3,000 lawyers of the Madras Bar boycotted work after the supersession announcement. Senior advocate A.K. Ganguly was present at one such protest. There was a huge uh, meeting of the members of the bar, and not just Supreme Court bar. Lot many lawyers, including Mr. Palkewala, came down from Bombay to join this meeting of the bar. The big convention was organized for the lawyers at the convention hall of the Ashoka Hotel. And I still remember the great speakers like our uh, C.K. Daftari, the former Attorney General, Mr. Uh, Palkiwala and many others, many uh, leaders, they were part of it. In fact, you may be surprised that I was one of the speakers as a student representative. I still remember the words spoken by Mr. Daftari. Mr. Daftari said in that meeting, there was an essay competition. The student who wrote the best essay got the prize. He got it. That remark from the former Attorney General C.K. Daftari is now part of legal folklore. The references are easily decoded. The student was Justice A.N. Ray, who got the prize of promotion by writing an essay, or the judgment in favor of the government. Through this promotion, the government was effectively signaling, if you rule against us, there will be consequences. The supersession broke established convention. It was the first time that a senior judge had been passed over for political reasons. The government defended itself, saying it was only following the recommendations of the 1958 Law Commission report, which had suggested that seniority need not be the only criterion while appointing the Chief Justice. The candidate's administrative ability also had to be taken into account. For 15 years, the government did not act on these suggestions, and Chief Justices were still appointed by seniority. But now, one day after the court restricted Parliament's powers, the report was suddenly relevant. Steel Minister Mohan Kumar Mangalam, one of Indira Gandhi's closest advisors, pointedly talked about the social philosophy of judges, that they needed to be, quote, forward-looking, that they needed to heed the winds of change. Arvind Datar explains why the government was hurting after the April 24th ruling. They saw it as a defeat in the sense that they wanted parliament's power to be unchecked. They said, who is anybody to tell us what we can do? Because this absurd and foolish view which continues till today is we represent will of the people. So when we get to parliament, we are representing will of the people. And who are the judges? They are unelected people. A ruckus erupted in parliament. The fiery socialist leader, Maduli Meye, initiated a seven-hour debate in the Lok Sabha. He accused the government of ousting independent-minded judges. And he was interrupted and shouted down by Congress MPs. Kumar Mangalam shot back that the government had the discretion to appoint judges it considered had, quote, the most suitable philosophy or outlook. Each of the superseded judges themselves gave press conferences in which they aired their woes. Sikri remarked that the supersession appeared to be political 
and a fallout of the Keshavananda Bharati ruling. Nonetheless, A.N. Ray was now the Chief Justice of India. Indira Gandhi had had her way. Typically, we would end the story of a court case here, with the judgment and the response of both parties. But our story doesn't end here. The basic structure doctrine was born, but its survival wasn't guaranteed. Its exact meaning was still a puzzle and could only be clarified through future cases. Liang tells us. There is actually, in a way, a kind of a vacuum that, basic, that the basic structure doctrine is in until it is examined for the first time. The basic structure doctrine didn't have to do anything. What did it actually mean? It didn't matter. You could have had an academic discussion on what it meant. You would have people writing in law review articles on what the scope is. But its first practical application only arises in the context of an actual litigation which raises the basic structure doctrine as an argument. For two years after the supersession, there was a lull in the conflict between the court and the government. During this period, though, resentment against Indira Gandhi grew as public anger simmered over inflation and unemployment. 73 was the year when the Gujarat Navdirvan Samiti movement started. So you didn't feel it much in Delhi, but uh, certainly one was reading reports about uh, uh, there was mass agitation. Then it took off in Bihar. This is senior journalist Ajoy Bose. Back in the early 1970s, he was a crime reporter for the left-wing newspaper, The Patriot. Uh, and uh, in Bihar, it was also very active. Opposition was getting very restless. Uh, and there were all kinds of rumors that even within the Congress, people were upset with Indira Gandhi because her son, Sanjay Gandhi, was getting more and more powerful. Jay Prakash Narayan, popularly known as JP, was a 72-year-old Gandhian socialist from Bihar. He became the face of the movement. Nentara Segal, the writer, and Indira Gandhi's cousin, recalls the Prime Minister's response. She believed that there was rising chaos in the country. And partly, I think, because JP had come up and proved to be such a popular leader among the young, amongst many other people. And she didn't just believe it, that was happening. Indira Gandhi dismissed the protests as a sinister conspiracy that was at work against her government and her life. She was just not wanting to be removed and they were using methods outside parliament. And there has been a campaign of uh, hate and calumny against me personally. Against Mrs. Gandhi replied that such demonstrations were part of a deliberate campaign by extremists to reduce India's political life to chaos and so make the country ungovernable. It wasn't herself or the Congress party who were undemocratic, she said, but irresponsible opposition elements who chose direct action rather than constitutional methods to air their grievances. Things were only going to get worse for her. On June 12, 1975, the Allahabad High Court delivered the biggest blow. I was at that time in Taj Hotel in Bombay. Just a couple of minutes after 10 o'clock, I got a call from Delhi from my brother Vijay Kumar, who informed me that he had just heard on All India Radio that the High Court had set aside Mrs. Gandhi's election and had also disqualified her. As senior advocate Shanti Bhushan describes in this old interview, the Allahabad High Court said that Gandhi's 1971 election from Rai Bareilly was invalid. 
The judgment was in response to a case filed by a maverick opposition leader called Raj Narayan. Narayan had contested against her in the Raibareli seat and lost. Suspecting foul play, he challenged her victory. And that case had been pending for several years, but it was never seen as a serious threat to the Prime Minister. Now, four years later, the High Court found Gandhi guilty of two corrupt practices under election laws. It said she'd taken the help of government officials as election agents and used government machinery to set up her campaign stage, loudspeakers and other paraphernalia. These were minor offences, presumably common across campaigns, but they legally amounted to electoral malpractice. And the High Court declared her election void. This meant she would not be able to hold any public office for the next six years. After that, uh, of course, the appeal was filed uh, in the Supreme Court by Mrs. Gandhi and she asked for a stay of the High Court judgment. That stay hearing went on in the Supreme Court, I think it was on the 24th of June, uh, the whole day where Mr. Palkiwala appeared for Mrs. Gandhi and my father was for Raj Narayan. This is Prashant Bhushan, the advocate and son of Shanti Bhushan. And yes, he's talking of the very same Nani Palkiwala, the man who was so vocally against Gandhi's policies. Palkiwala took her brief because he believed the judgment against her was not sound. On 24th June, he managed to win Gandhi a partial stay. A five-judge bench would give the final verdict later. But for now, the partial stay meant that Indira Gandhi could remain Prime Minister and continue to attend Parliament, even though she would not be able to participate in the proceedings. Opposition parties were, of course, very, very excited and they, and they felt that uh, she would have to go. And they immediately launched a campaign saying that she must resign after this judgment, uh, especially after the, uh, the stay hearings in the Supreme Court when Justice Krishna Iyer gave only a partial stay, allowing her to sort of go and sign the register but not participate in parliament proceedings. So the opposition said that we cannot allow, we cannot have a crippled prime minister uh, in parliament and therefore she should resign. And uh, the next day, on the 25th, there was a huge rally uh, at uh, the Boat Club lawns at India Gate, where uh, Jay Prakash Narayan and all the opposition leaders participated. They led with one striking slogan. Singhasan khali karo ki janta aati hai. Hours later, on that hot summer night, the President of India signed the emergency declaration. Even Indira Gandhi's cabinet of ministers did not know she was about to take this step. Gandhi informed the nation the next morning. Typically, during an emergency, the normal functioning of the government is suspended. Fundamental freedoms, such as the right to free speech and movement, are in abeyance. The emergency declared by Indira Gandhi went much further. The president issued an order suspending fundamental rights to equality, life and liberty. Indira Gandhi told the country that these steps were necessary to rein in the unruly elements that had taken over Indian public life. Opposition leaders including Jay Prakash Narayan, Murarji Desai, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, Alkhi Advani, Raj Narayan and others were detained. Press censorship kicked in immediately. 
डायरेक्ट राज करने लगी कि पकड़ लिए आपको पता है कि उस वक्त एक लाख आदमी डिटेन हुए थे विदाउट ट्रायल एक लाख आदमी आदमी सोचता नहीं कि भाई ये इतने भी औसत दूसरा प्रेस सेंसरशिप कि भाई आप कुछ लिख नहीं सकते अगर लिखना चाहते हो तो सेंसर से दिखाओ कि क्या है तो हम मैं एक्सप्रेस में काम करता था तो हमने एक दिन तो उसको रन किया था बिल्कुल ब्लैंक एडिटोरियल को ताकि एक प्रोटेस्ट की तरह पर बखैर उसके बाद अब क्योंकि उनके पास अभी तैयार नहीं था सेंसरशिप का तो उन्होंने ये बहादुर शाह जफर मार्ग पर जहाँ पर सब ज्यादा दफ्तर हैं उसमें से उन्होंने बिजली काट दी और बिजली नहीं आए तो मैं रात को एक्सप्रेस से मुझे फ़ोन आया कि जी बिजली नहीं है मैंने कहा प्रेस कैसे चलाएं तो मैंने कहा बिजली क्यों नहीं लेकिन अब मिसिस गांधी का रिमार्क था जब इमरजेंसी लग गई तो दूसरे दिन उसने एक रिमार्क दिया नॉट ए डॉग हैज बार्क Indira Gandhi had censored the press and subdued the political opposition but the legal threat to her position remained her election case was still due for final hearing by this time troubled by her decision to impose an emergency palkiwala had returned her brief before her appeal was heard there was a constitution amendment which was passed which essentially declared that the prime minister's election can never be challenged and it was constitution amendment which was designed to protect uh, her own election this is prashant bhushan again he's referring to the 39th amendment it inserted a new clause in the constitution which stated that the election of the prime minister could not be reviewed by the court the amendment was passed on 10th august just in time for the supreme court hearing in the shadow of the emergency in the country's most fraught political case one question emerged did the 39th amendment violate the basic structure shanti bhushan who argued that petition passed away earlier this year prashant bhushan attended the hearings as they unfolded between august and october of 1975 at the time he was an undergraduate studying philosophy at allahabad university with no particular interest in the law but he was living through turbulent times and these cases he watched first hand suddenly made the law seem interesting He took detailed notes and later wrote a book about the case. See, this was the emergency, and you had to get passes made. Otherwise, Supreme Court was an open court. But this during the emergency, and especially for this case, entry was restricted to only people who had passes. I used to sit in the visitors' gallery, but unfortunately, because of the emergency and press censorship, the proceedings were not being reported in the press. The matter went before a five-judge bench headed by the Chief Justice of India, A. N. Ray. The other four judges had also been on the Keshavananda Bharati bench. All familiar names: Justices Matthew, Beg, Khanna, and Chandrachud. Arguments began on August twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy-five. Shanti Bhushan first addressed the bench. My father's arguments against this thirty-ninth amendment were that. Uh, clearly uh, violates democracy destroys democracy if you make the prime minister's election beyond challenge it violates democracy it violates equality it violates the rule of law which he said were part of the basic structure this was the first occasion to make a tangible case for what the basic structure really stood for 
Shanti Bhushan made a memorable and compelling argument. Here he is recounting it in an interview to the Quint. I said, look at my junior, J.P. Goel. Supposing he was carried to an operation theater and the surgeon was told to transplant all his organs, everything, except his left thumb. Every other, every part of the body would be transplanted, some other person's part would be placed. So when he is being wheeled out of the operation theater and his wife has put this question, do you recognize him as your husband? And she will look at him and she will say, no, he is not my husband. And the surgeons would say, no, no, look at his left thumb. She would say, no, no. So I said, since the various organs which have been transplanted, change his identity, he becomes a different person. That's the theory of basic structure. This was the classic ship of Theseus thought experiment. If you replace all the parts of a ship with new ones, is it still the same ship? Which are those vital parts of the constitution which give it a particular identity, secularism, democracy. If you change and say it will be a, now we are amending the constitution, the prime ministership will go by heredity and prime minister will become the dictator. No majority of the parliament, etc. will bind. There will won't be any parliament, etc. Only a president will be there, who will be Mrs. Gandhi and her successors. So this change could be made. But then, is the constitution still the same constitution? The Supreme Court had unanimously upheld the election of Prime Minister Mrs. Indira Gandhi to the Lok Sabha in 1971 setting aside the judgment of the Allahabad High Court. On November 7th, the Supreme Court overturned the High Court order and said that Indira Gandhi was not guilty of electoral malpractice. Gandhi would stay on as Prime Minister. Welcoming the decision, cheering crowds reaffirmed their faith in Mrs. Gandhi's leadership. Thanking the people for their support, the Prime Minister calls upon them to channel the discipline brought about by the emergency into constructive activities and fight the social and economic evils that beset the land. But the court didn't hand Gandhi total victory. By a 4-1 majority, it struck down parts of the 39th Amendment that protected the election of the Prime Minister. The majority agreed on one thing. This clause violated the basic structure of the Constitution. Here's Gautam Bhatia. Raj Narayan was, was the first case where this doctrine was tested because it was still very new. The court uh, struck down by a 4-1 majority uh, in inter alia holding that, for instance, the rule of law, it was a basic feature and an amendment like this was damaging, destroying the idea or the concept of the rule of law by virtue of what it tried to do. Justices Chandrachud, Ray and Matthew, who were in the minority in Keshavananda, did not question that doctrine here. Even as authoritarianism swept in under the emergency, the basic structure doctrine managed to gain acceptance. So that was the first case in which uh, the uh, principle was tested and uh, in a certain sense cemented as, as, you know, as a doctrine that was part of Indian constitutionalism. 
the basic structure had been tested and it had survived. But there's more drama still to come. Join us as we follow the tightening of the emergency, fresh attacks on the Keshavananda Bharati judgment, and Nani Palkiwala's finest hour in court. Until then, I'm your host, Raghu Karnad. Friend of the Court is a project by the Anil Devan Foundation. Thank you to the guests on this episode. A.K. Ganguly, Ajoy Bose, Arvind Datar, Gautam Bhatia, Lawrence Liang, Nayantara Sehgal, Prashant Bhushan, Rajiv Khanna, Justice Santosh Hegde, and Yazdi Dandiwala. The show was written and researched by Bhavya Dore and Ramya Bodupali. Legal research and fact-checking was provided by Aishwarya Chaturvedi. The scripts were edited by Supriya Nair. The show was produced by Gaurav Vaz, audio production and music score by Sachi Rajatyaksha, and mastered by Ayan De. Lawrence Liang, Ranveer Singh, Sham Divan, and Vivek Divan were advisors on this series. Special thanks to Anand Thakur, Geeta Sehgal, Homi Ranina, Lalita Kumaramangalam, and Vimal Thakur. <laughs>